Well, let's start this Matthew chapter 18. Um, this, this set of scriptures, I think, is often misunderstood, uh, not because of any, in, any ill intent uh, of the reader. It's just that we fail to remember. Our favorite saying in this class is, context is king, right? It wears the crown. So when we talk about context being king, everything Jesus is going to say in chapter 18 has to be bathed in the context of who he's talking to and just as importantly in some of these passages where he is, is speaking these words. If you look back at chapter uh, 17, verse 24, it says, they came to what city? Chapter 17, verse 24. They came to Capernaum. Now, tell me about Capernaum. Where is Capernaum? Right? It's on kind of the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee up there. Who lives in Capernaum? Peter does. Um, and so it would probably stand a reason that Andrew, his brother, also lives there. They are fellow fishermen. We know that James and John are also fishermen, so what's the safe assumption? That they also live there. So um, some of Jesus' earliest sermons and miracles were done in Capernaum. Where does Jesus live when he is not out on the road? With Peter. Where is Jesus when he is going to have this conversation with the disciples? Functionally. He's in his living room, right? Um, so it's important when we read these uh, stories and parables that you understand that up to this point, I've made a, a lot, a lot of, uh, 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 dedicated a lot of energy to emphasizing there's always three groups when Jesus talks. The Pharisees, um, the disciples, center front, and then over here on the left, you, you guys have been playing the crowd. And you all have been doing a wonderful job this whole, these whole several weeks we've been in Matthew. But today, everything is combined. We are in Jesus' living room, and we are with the 12. We are with the 12 and what it appears to be their families. So this is a small group, um, as best as we can define that, that, that in that day and era. It's uh, 12 men, if they're married, perhaps their families, and their children. And so... As Jesus is holding these conversations, keep that in mind. This is a living room conversation. This is not a sermon that he's preaching to thousands of people. This is a living room conversation he's having with specifically the 12, and any overflow that wants to hear it can. But this is a living room conversation. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So somewhere along the way, they have traveled down from the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, who allegedly haven't told anybody about the Transfiguration yet, but that kind of stuff, if you, if you want to keep a secret, what do you have to do? Tell no one, right? If two people know a secret, it's not a secret anymore. Um, but Peter, James, and, and John, the, the, uh, the, the three, the three kind of top disciples of Jesus, are functioning uh, in the twelve. I can't imagine them not being able to keep that under wraps. But they've traveled from 
up north. Uh, they traveled probably a, a week or so, maybe longer by foot back to Capernaum, and they're having that, like their their suit their suitcases are still like in the living room where they dropped them after their trip, and they haven't fully unpacked yet. So that's kind of their life, and they're having that 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 conversation. And somewhere along the way, they began to talk about how awesome it's going to be when Jesus really becomes king. Because we've got this, like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And, and Peter's like, you don't know how awesome this is going to be. You keep thinking Jesus is just a really great guy. And I don't want to say, but and he kind of looks over at Ann, uh, James and John and kind of winks at him. He's like, who do you think, who do you think is going to get the first promotion? Who do you think, like when Jesus becomes king, who's going to be his secret service president or something? Like they're, they're racking and stacking themselves. They know where Judas is going to be because they hate that guy. Um, and, uh, and Matthew, he's just the tax collector. We don't like him at all. Uh, but they're, they're, they're racking and stacking themselves going, who's better? And so they come to Jesus with an honest question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Meaning, Jesus, tell me how good I am. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. So Jesus is there in the living room, and they're in Peter's house, and they're having a living room conversation. Who, whose child does Jesus pick up off the floor? Probably Peter's, right? It's one of Peter's little, little mischievous little characters, probably redheaded. In my mind, he is. And, uh, and so he, he leans over and he picks up the, the toddler and he puts him on his knee. Anywhere you see Jesus going, Jesus always is elevating women and children above their natural station in, in, the, in this time and era. Uh, the men did all the talking and the thinking, but where do we often find Jesus communicating and talking to children and to women? He's, 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 he breaks all kind of social faux pas. Um, he does all kind of crazy stuff, but he grabs women and children, and he says, you're part of the kingdom of God too. And so he snatches up this kid, and he sets it before the, the disciples. And it's Peter's kid. I'm almost 100% sure of that. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you were converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now let's pause there. What does it mean to have a childlike faith? This is something that is of uh, just absolute terrible misunderstanding within modern church today. What does it mean to have a childlike faith? Talk to me. And if you're wrong, I'll just say wrong, and I'll, we'll all point and laugh. Uh, no, talk to me. Come on, loosen up. What's it mean to have a childlike faith? Okay. Uh, g- give me examples. Y'all got examples of a childlike faith? Think of some times perhaps when you were a child and your parents said, let's go do this, or you turn to your child and with only the prompting of it's time to go, they just followed implicitly. You got any examples you can think of? You do. You got a big smile on your face. I'm thinking more of the child being like uh, always questioning, <laughs> always trying to uh, learn. You know, it's like you know, trying to keep up. Okay. They're always trying to gather information. Okay. Trust me on that. Okay. 
testing boundaries, but but we use that term, but they're they're checking the system. Is the system still intact? Right. Um, uh, now I don't have any small children in here, so we can venture to say this. Um, so wh- what's what's the general debate about Santa Claus? Real, not real? Because he's real in my house, right? We tell our kids if you don't believe in Santa Claus, he's not coming giving you any presents. Plain and simple. Morning. And uh, uh, but but here's what what I, I'm driving here. On December 24th, what do your children and grandchildren inherently believe, no matter how old they are? What's happening the next day? Yeah. Whether Santa looks like you or like me, someone's coming to give me gifts, right? Right? Childlike faith is, is a faith that is built on fact and built on a proven position. Your children know that you're going to take care of them because you take care of them. Even if they're questioning and testing the system, they know at the end of the day they've got a place to stay, they've got food to eat, and they're, and they're, they're trying to, to live their life in that. That's what childlike faith looks like in the Christian sense. It is not this, I'm covering my eyes and I'm crossing my fingers, and I hope, I hope, I hope that Jesus is Lord and Savior when I die. That's not childlike. That's blind faith, and that is not Christian faith, by the way, uh, at least not in its purest form. Christian faith, this childlike faith Jesus is talking about is this child believes he is safe because Peter has created a safe home, right? This child feels, good morning, this child feels safe in this group because we've created a place of space that is safe for this child. And Jesus is saying, you have to have faith like this child. And what is this child doing? Sitting on Jesus' knee. What disposition do you think the child is sitting on Jesus' knee? All these, all these men are staring at this child. And where is this child looking? I guarantee you that child's looking at Jesus because it's something special uh, to be with Jesus. It's something special to sit with Jesus, he loves children, he loves people, he takes care of us. And, and Jesus sits Peter's child up on his knee and he goes, you see this right here? You guys are so worried about making rank and making position and figuring it out and who's going to be in charge. This child doesn't care, doesn't care who's in charge because they just know that I'm in the room. That's what Christian faith is. is I don't know all the details. I don't know who's all in charge. All I know is that Jesus loves me. And that's what he's driving at. Whoever then, verse 4 of chapter 18, uh, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now let's, let's clear this up too. Guess what Jesus is not talking about right here? Children. Okay? He's talking to his disciples, right, to teach them to follow him better. He's not taking children and saying, you have to be children. No, I mean, the whole, the whole book, he's trying to get them to grow up and be adults, right? Grow up. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you have to know 
that there are some things that you're not going to understand and there are some places maybe you don't want to go and don't want to do, but because I have you on my knee here and you keep looking at me, you're cool with the situation. That's what's happening. He's not talking about children. He's talking about children of the kingdom of God, you and me, of, of any age. And in verse 6, he has this, uh, this passage of Scripture. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is, I mean, like, tie a cruise ship anchor around your ankles and drop them off into the depths of the sea kind of language. Jesus is being very, I mean, everyone understood that description. It'd be better to be drugged to the bottom of the sea than to deal with God in his wrath and anger. So he's, don't mess with the children. Not the children, not the toddlers. That's not what he's talking about. Who is he talking about? He's talking to his disciples who are fixing to be tasked with what? Building out the church. And he's saying, be very careful how you take care of my people. Now, inherent in that, I think, is children, but understand that is not Jesus' main thrust here. You following me? Head nod if you're with me. He's not talking about the little children. He's saying to you, Peter, James, John, Andrew, all the disciples, it's important. If you lead my people astray, if you mess with them, if you teach them the wrong thing, if you teach them to do one thing but you do another, it would be better for you to just die a terrible death than to deal with me. Take care of my people. Then he says this, verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Now, who do you think he's referring to when he says that? In this context, who is he talking about? The Pharisees, that's right. He is directly addressing, y'all remember the last couple chapters we've been dealing with the Pharisees? They keep coming and picking and picking and picking and picking. And Jesus says, hey, look, the world has stopped. Whoa, whoa, horrible, bad luck, terrible. I'm sorry, I don't like it. Woe to the stumbling blocks. The woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. He's talking about the Pharisees. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. They're going to be people who mis misinterpret, mistreat, and misteach Scripture. And he looks at the twelve and don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Um, what are the man that comes to the, uh, the man through whom the stumbling block comes? If and then he all right. So then chapter uh, eighteen verse eight, uh, Jesus uses um, uh, Middle East um, exaggeration. It's, it's a common literary term. We do this all the time. Um, has it been humid at your house this week? Like how? Just but just your house, right? Um, how humid has it been? Like how bad? Like scale of one to a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How hot has it been? Yeah. Okay. And how hot has it been? It's miserable. Has anybody ever said to you, it's like a million degrees out there? Now, what would happen if it was a million degrees? Like the whole world would be. Do you believe it's a million degrees outside? No. Do they think it's a million degrees outside? Is it literally a no? What is what are what are they trying to communicate? It's it's stupid hot. It's just stupid hot. This is what Jesus is doing. Okay, 
He is not going to advocate here for physical mutilation. He is advocating uh, for this exaggeration, going, hey, look, you, you got to know following me is very important. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled, um, that is the afterlife, uh, after death, crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Uh, literally, that, that um, next verse, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than for you to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell or Gehenna, which was literally a place outside of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a, it's a garbage dump. Um, it used to be a site of ritual pagan um, sacrifice where the Jews actually participated in child sacrifice outside of Jerusalem. And after they came back to God and they came back to Scripture, they realized what a national embarrassment that was. So they turned that area into a garbage dump, right? Where, where what happens when you throw food and, and other refuse out? You have worms and maggots and everything else. That's where that concept of where the worm never dies and the fire never quenches, that's where that comes from. It's, a, it's, a, it's literally a landfill, landfill outside of Jerusalem. Um, and so Jesus says it, it'd, be better, it'd be better for you to be thrown out there into that place of absolute pagan idolatry and horridness. Uh, don't go there. Don't, uh, don't misteach. Don't mislive this Christian life. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I think that's an interesting passage of Scripture for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, again, he's not talking about, he does have a child sitting on his knee, but he's not talking about children in the raw sense. He's talking about young followers of Christ, the early parts of what will be the church in a couple of chapters uh, deep into the book of Acts. And, um, and he says, look, you can't despise people because they don't know as much as you. But what are we so prone to do, especially in the church? Have someone show up to Sunday school that has no clue about the Bible and has got real questions, and everyone's eyes are like, what? Bro, like you don't even know? How do you not know? Um, and Jesus is saying, you can't be like that. You can't despise people for where they are in this journey. you gotta, you got to keep teaching them and keep growing them. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that they're angels. And that word there in your translation, verse 10, do you all see that? They're angels. That's a personal angel. I'm going to say, I don't understand this. I know there is some who have these deep, very broad understandings of angels. Uh, this guy doesn't have it, right? Um, there are a couple, two or three verses in Scripture that indicate perhaps a personal level of angelic care. Uh, angels cared for Jesus. Uh, we know that, that uh, at least on more than one occasion, uh, Peter had some angels come to talk to him, had to actually smack him around a little bit, get him awake. That's over in the book of Acts. Um, uh, I don't know if everyone has a personal guardian angel or if it's more like a, a grocery store chain where they kind of service a larger body of people. You know, they have a central location. They kind of take care of things. Uh, either which way, here's what Jesus says. Don't mess with people that are learning about me because those angels see them and they report back to me every day. He's like, they're going to tell on you if you're stupid. And, and all the disciples were like, well, we don't, we don't want that. Okay. 
So, um, for I say to you that their angels in heaven, in heaven continually, continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, then he transitions to another story, okay, which we, 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 uh, you know, we call the lost sheep. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? Now, set this picture, right? Um, I have heard this preached by evangelists and well-intentioned preachers a, a lot, uh, and they use this passage as a, uh, an evangelical scripture where, where we should go out and search for those who are lost. Uh, that's certainly a true Christian imperative, but that's not what's being taught here. Who is Jesus talking to? Didn't say it out loud. It's fine. He's talking to his disciples, right? He's talking to the people that are there in his pen with him in the living room having this conversation. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, in the context, what is he dealing with? He's dealing with um, strong teaching fidelity. Make sure that you're teaching the right thing to my people, right? Do you see that? And then he says, now imagine there's a hundred teachers and one of them goes astray. That's what he's driving at, okay? This is not a passage of scripture to go out and, and save the lost sheep that are in a ditch uh, that, are, that are lost. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who believe in him. So what does that tell us about Bible teachers? There's a potential for what? To stray. Now, there's a potential to stray for a lot of reasons. Um, I think that if we're going to be good Christian Bible students, we have to, I'm going to hold up one thumb here, love God, I'm going to hold another thumb, love people. Okay, And we have to have it in that order. And we have to have both of them. Have y'all ever been to a, really hot-hearted preaching session where it was clear that the preacher loved God, but it almost felt like he hated people. Y'all been there? I've been there, and, and I have walked away from sermons like that going, wow, that guy knew, uh, there was a, he's a preacher, uh, he's since passed on, there was a preacher I knew, he must have breathed through his eyes because he would preach for 45 minutes straight, and it almost felt like he never took a breath. He was probably one of the greatest preachers I have ever heard in my life. I won't mention his name, because I'm going to say something unkind about him here in a minute. Um, uh, but, I mean, incredible. The man could preach more out of the first chapter of the book of Esther than I could preach out of the whole Old Testament. Like, he knew the Bible. He was enriched by scripture. And when you sat in front of his teaching, you were just like, buckle in, because here we go. And it was so powerful to hear him preach. But I'm going to tell you what, not, not many times did I walk away from those sermons thinking, Jesus loves me more as a result of that sermon. Have y'all heard these sermons? I, I find this to be uh, very true in uh, like evangelist circles and especially older old school preaching where it's really loud and boisterous uh, i've come out of churches before where uh god bless them like my grandparents would say well, well they were really preaching today and i was thinking man the guy didn't even break his scripture open 
You know, he didn't even almost crack the spine of his Bible. But because of the tone, right, and the rhetoric, you got to love God. And this preacher loved God, but I wasn't entirely sure he loved God's people. But then there's another error, and we are deeply within this context in our world now where we love people, genuinely love people. And we want to be kind and loving and generous and sweet to people. But if God's word says don't do something, you, you've got to hold on to Scripture, right? And I think our culture has gotten to where we want to love everyone so much that we're out of balance. You have to have both, right? And Jesus is saying you can stray from, you can stray from biblical fidelity by speaking the truth but not doing it in love or just speaking a lot of love but not being willing to bring truth to bear. You've got to be able to look at someone you love and go, you're wrong on this, and, and not be subjective. Like, this is, this is where you're wrong, and I'm going to be courageous enough to tell you. And if that costs the friendship, that's fine, right? I'm pretty sure when Jesus is snatching a knot metaphorically in his sheep that's down in a pit, he's got to do some damage to get him up out of that hole, right? Um, and I've got a whole illustration on that. What do you think if any man has a 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. It is a joy to watch someone come back to Jesus. Not lose, it's not talking about salvation. We're not talking about losing salvation. We're not talking about getting lost and not having Jesus in their heart. We're talking about someone who believes something wrong about Jesus after starting well, and we have brought them back in through love, kindness, and teaching, and have brought them back into the fold, right? And what does it say? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Now, those of you who have sibling rivalries with the people in your lives, right, that you know that you're better than your siblings, uh, you, you understand the frustration of this truth, but those of you who are parents and you've lived long enough to watch some of your kids make some stupid decisions but turn back to Christ, you understand what Jesus is getting at, right? And you go, no, 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 I get it. I get it. I love all of my kids, but thank God, thank God the one that had strayed has come back. And that's what Jesus is referring, referring to. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I don't want to see the people that I love and save fall off into, into error. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, who is he talking to again? I know I keep coming back to this. Who is he talking to? The disciples. He's talking to his 12 in the living room. And... How many sets of brothers do we know are in the 12? At least two, right? Peter and Andrew and James and John. We know there are at least two sets of brothers. Um, and then we kind of know that several of them are cousins in the mix. Um, and then the way that the Gospels uh, list the 12 disciples, it seems kind of clear that there are uh, three sets of four, Peter, James, John, Andrew are kind of the top four, 
and then the next grouping of four, and then the bottom of a grouping of four, that probably is an indication that those kind of became like the SEC West, SEC East kind of situation where they 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 maybe hated each other, but they they were that was our that was our group, that was our people, and um, and Jesus says, if your brother sins, you have a responsibility to go and show him his fault. How? In private. In private. Now let's talk about the wisdom of privacy in correction. Why, where's, why is there wisdom in privacy and correction? Yeah. Yeah. And what if they didn't know they were in error? Or what if they absolutely knew they were in error, but you exposed it publicly? You've made two problems out of one, right? So Jesus says, if your brother has sinned, go to him privately. Um, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Fantastic. Woohoo. But if he does not listen, you take one or two or take one or two more with you, so by the mouth of two or three witnesses every every fact may be confirmed. What is the Old Testament threshold for um, for a credible witness? You have to have two or three witnesses. And that's what Jesus is saying. So if someone has straight away a believer, a brother or sister in Christ, go to them privately. If you win them over, to God be the glory. If not, you take another or two others. And presumably, uh, Paul would later uh, talk about this in Galatians. Those of you who are spiritual, right? Those of you who are uh, emotionally and spiritually mature enough to do this. Not everybody is, right? And, and so you take them and you say, all right, we're going we're gonna to say this again to you. We're going to speak this truth to you again. And now we're coming as a group. Um, but again, what's the context? Public or private? Private. Privately, right? Even though it's now two or three, we're still doing this in the context of privacy. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. Now, interesting concept to me here in Matthew 18. You know what is historically absent in Matthew 18? The church. Church isn't born until Acts chapter 3. Um, so Jesus is doing some preemptive teaching on how to grow up and be a good community of believers, to be a good church. So this is some pre-crucifixion church theology, all right? Direct church theology. So uh, if he refuses to listen even to the church, so you've gone to him privately, you've gone to him privately again with two or three, and now we're going to expose this, but how, how much are we going to expose this? Only for the family, okay? Only the family is going to talk about this. This is not a gossip fest for the whole community. This is for the family. And if they will refuse to hear even the family, what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to use the positive aspects of, of, of spiritual peer pressure, right? We love you. You're a part of who we are and what we're doing, but you're walking outside the bounds of biblical fidelity, biblical uh, you know the, the straight lines of, of scriptural teaching come back even if they refuse to do that after the church verse 18 or verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector now let's talk about that what are we talking about here Uh, Matthew's a tax collector. <laughs> He's like, what, 
What'd you say, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, treat him like we treat Matthew. We hate that guy. Uh, and then Peter kind of elbows him. I'm just kidding. We just hate you a little. Um, how do we treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Yeah, they did. How should they? How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He introduced himself to them, right? So I think there's a balance here where we have to understand if they refuse to follow the dictates of Scripture, then they perhaps are indicating that they may not know Jesus. John uh, would write over in one of his three letters, they, they went out from us because they were not of us. They looked like they were part of us, but they weren't. So when you go to them and they refuse to turn back and repent, they're either validating they don't know Jesus, but then Jesus says, turns right around, treat them like the Gentile and tax collector. And how have, I how have I treated Gentiles and tax collectors? And he looks over at Matthew. Right? And Matthew goes, okay, I got it. I got it. So we still can't hate them and mistreat them. We still have to treat them with Christian charity. Um, but we do have to exclude them from the, the, the thought that they're operating inside of Christian doctrine. But we want them to even when they're not. Uh, again, I say to or verse 18, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound or shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, uh, our our Catholic friends, uh, my my uh, my priest friends, would say this is the kind of the scriptural foundation for for what they understand as confession. Right? You go into the confessional booth, you confess your sins, and the priest uh, either releases you from that sin or or says no, you're not forgiven. Um, I would disagree with that interpretation. What Jesus is saying here is God already has an authoritative law in the heavenly places. You understand that this word is eternal, right? Which means that even before Matthew put pen to paper, that in the spiritual realm, the truths of this book were already existing, right? Um, and, and he's saying here, those truths are universal. What's bound in heaven Gentlemen, ladies, disciples, followers of Jesus, you have a Christian responsibility to hold to what God has bound. And what God has loosed, you have a scriptural, biblical, Christian imperative to be loosed of those things. Right? Uh, so uh, Paul, again, over in his letters, would later talk about dietary restrictions again and certain holidays. Right? And he'd say some of y'all celebrate every moon and every holiday and you've got a very strict diet and you've got a very strict way you do your life hey if that's for you that's fine treat treat that brother like a like a, like a true christian brother but there are some of you who eat chitlins and 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 enjoy a good saturday night and like to party a little bit uh, uh don't judge that brother either if they're living within the christian context then hey we're we're in the family um so if it's bound in heaven then it's bound, right? If God says that marriage is between a husband, one man and his wife, then that's the biblical imperative. Uh, what's bound in heaven has to be bound here on earth. What's loosed in heaven must be loosed on, on earth as well. And that's what he's trying to teach his disciples. You don't get to make the rules. I've already made them. But what the, once the rules are met, you need to teach and adhere to those. And then those things that are loosed, but you have a problem with, you need to let go of those right? Don't be binding people unnecessarily like the Pharisees had been doing. Verse 19, and again I say to you that if, if, the two, 
if the two of you agree on earth about anything that they may be that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So he basically kind of gives them this understanding, like pray with each other, ask God for wisdom, and when when two or three people sit together um, and you're asking God to, to do these things in the context of bringing people back into the kingdom of God. That's the context here, right? This isn't about praying, should you go on a missionary trip or should you buy that, that car or that house? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who strayed. Sit together, be brokenhearted when one of your children goes off, when one of our church members wanders off and you go, I got to sit with Chaz. We got to sit here and pray about this. And then we got to go get this guy. We got to get him back into the family. If the two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. And then this passage that has classically been abused, maligned, and beat up, um, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, how have people bent that scripture all out of place? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, where two or three are gathered, we're going to pray about this, and the Lord's with us. It says right here in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. What's the context of the two or three? When's the last time we just saw two or three? When you were bearing witness, right. When you were bearing witness, trying to pull my brother back from sin. What is, what is Jesus teaching here? He's saying you have to have collective wisdom on what God is doing. And, I'm gonna, I'm, and that's what I want to do, right? When I have something that I'm trying to struggle with and deal with, I'm going to call fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and go, hey, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, this is the course of action I think I should take. Give me some wise and godly counsel. And in the multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. So we're going to pull that wisdom, and we're going to pursue unity in the body based on that wisdom. Not my way or the highway. It's God's way or no way. And so it's not, a, it's not a scripture of sitting together and praying in two or three. Uh, it's, it's, it's this concept of we're unified in our pursuit to teach scripture and to bring people back in line into scripture. Um, uh, by the way, you can sit by yourself in your living room and pray all by yourself, and you can have church, right? Because the Holy Spirit is present in you. He lives in you. If you're a believer in Christ, he lives in you. So the Spirit is present whether you've got a partner in crime or not, right? Verse 21, then Peter came and said to Jesus, uh, now this, this is probably like a day or so later, and maybe he got a little pricked in his heart about this whole if your brother sins against you, because does Peter have a brother in the 12? Yeah, it's Andrew. Uh, do brothers get on each other's nerves? Even brothers you love? Yes, thank you. Uh, and he goes, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, um, I am told, though I don't understand the references, um, one of my commentators said this is from Job and from Amos, so that this is a, a, a rabbinical teaching that you had to forgive uh, your brother three times. That was, the, that was the biblical benchmark for forgiving. You had to forgive him three times. So... When Peter comes up to Jesus and goes, how many times should I forgive my brother when I sent him? Seven times? What was he doing? He's like, I'll double it and add one. Don't you see how super spiritual I'm being? Right? And, um, and he goes, Lord, uh, when this guy forgives against, sins against me, 
How many times should I forgive him? Seven, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Jesus, you know how spiritual I am. And Jesus said, well, actually, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times. Or some translations read seven times 70 or 70 times 70, depending on how you're going to do the math. Um, I don't do math. I don't do public math, especially. Uh, What is Jesus driving at? In the threshold of forgiveness, how big is the, the margin of error? When a brother or sister comes to you and says, forgive me, forgive them. This is an infinite reality. Okay? For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So I want you to look at me when I, when I tell you this story. All right, so, so Peter says seven times, and Jesus says, no, seven times 70. And Peter's response must have been like, you see what I'm saying? Like, because Jesus' response to Peter's, my perception, Peter's, like, physical reaction to being told he had to keep forgiving infinite, infinitely, he was like, uh-uh, you're going to have to tell me one of them stories, Jesus. I don't understand that, okay? And uh, so Jesus tells him a story. <laughs> For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to set, settle accounts with his slaves. And we had begun to settle them. One who, who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, the annual family uh, tax on, a, on someone who lived in Galilee was 200 talents a year. Okay? That's their, that's their annual income tax. We all love taxes, right? Um, if you lived in Jerusalem or in some of the surrounding areas, your annual income tax was 600 talents. This is 10,000 talents. How much does this guy owe? Lots. Uh, just for the sake of the verbal argument that would mean sense, make sense to us, let's talk about this guy owes $100 million compared to what this next guy we're going to talk about, he owes 100 bucks. Okay. That's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot. This is, this is such an excur- extreme because Jesus is going to be trying to make a point with Peter, who's maybe angry with Andrew, <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, and he goes, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, uh, one owed $100 million and was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment was to be made. Uh, This was a custom. Debtor's prison was a real thing in this day and age. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before before the king and said, "Have have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. What's the possibility that you could pay $100 million back? What is that? It's 0%, right? And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him his debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred bucks. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. He didn't even, he didn't even talk to him, or he just seized him, right? Uh, now, this, this should fall in line with the context of what Jesus has taught about just a minute ago. If someone has a debt, has a sin against you, how should they know they have a debt against you? 
you go to them privately. How does this guy approach it? Publicly and violently. Do you see how this story folds into the teachings that he had just was walking with? They are connected. Context is key. So he said, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. What did he say? Same words as the guy who owed $100 million. Same words. But he was unwilling, and he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw that what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. So they're, they're brokenhearted, frustrated, and angry. They know that you've been forgiven of so much debt, but he was unwilling to forgive this little debt. Okay? Then, verse 32, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that, all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that he owed. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if, you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now let's talk about what this is not saying before we talk about what it is saying. It is not saying that if you don't forgive someone, uh, it means you're going to lose your salvation. What it is saying is if you are unwilling or unable to forgive someone of their sin, you are proving that you don't understand the depth of the sin that you have been forgiven of. You don't understand your own salvation. I had a, a very good friend of mine. He's still a very good friend of mine, an uh, older gentleman. His father survived the Bataan Death March. Y'all know what that is? Um, when, when the Japanese came to Pearl Harbor to attack, they actually split their forces. They sent the aircraft carriers, the Navy, and the airplanes to Hawaii, but they sent all of their troops to the Philippines. And they were going to do a two-pronged attack. And so they wiped out, they were attempting to wipe out the naval forces of the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii, but they were also going to take the Philippines and overwhelm the American forces that were there. And they accomplished that. And uh, I'll let you read uh, about that or study about the Bataan Death March on your own. Uh, there's a, fr a phrase called the Frozen Chosen. Sometimes we jokingly refer to our Presbyterian friends as that because uh, they're very liturgical or whatever else. Uh, I've heard that before. But the term actually came from the Bataan Death March. The Japanese soldiers were so brutal and so violent and so torturous to the soldiers and the men and women and the children that it is, it is a source of great national shame to this day. Um, the atrocities witnessed there at times almost make the concentration camps of Germany look tame. Because at least in Germany, much of the torture was done in chambers away from prying eyes. 
the Bataan Death March was done face to face, person by person. Horrible, terrible atrocities humans perpetrated on other humans. Um, the very first chief of chaplains of the Air Force was a survivor of the Bataan Death March. My friend's father survived that death march. It, it's a terrible moment in human history. And my friend said, my father never came to know Jesus. And he said he couldn't believe that God could forgive him of all the terrible things he had seen and done. And after years, I went back to him and I said, I want you to know, I don't think, I don't know if that's full, a full truth. It's not, it's not that your, your dad said, I can't follow Jesus because he can't forgive me. Knowing what happened in his heart, a lot of what probably happened was, I don't see how a loving God could forgive something that bad. How could he forgive that Japanese soldier that did those torturous, terrible things? And he didn't believe Jesus, and he, and he didn't die and go to heaven, as best as, as the family understands it. But what Jesus was saying here in Matthew 18 is the truth. It wasn't that Peter thought um, that God couldn't forgive him. It was that God couldn't forgive them for what they did. And Jesus just says, mm -mm, you need to understand this whole forgiveness bit, the way the story lays out. You owed, owed the hundred million. You owed the insurmountable debt. Anything anybody does to you is small potatoes compared to what your sin looks to a holy God who sits high in the heavenly places. That's the difference. That's the distinction. And Jesus says to Peter, you're worried about forgiving your brother seven times. I'm telling you, you have to give liberally and generously as I have given to you. Or as my dad would say, and it frustrates me when, when, when he says stuff like this, when it's on the mark and on the money, and he would say, Son, you need to be as graceful to him, only as graceful to him, and only as forgiving to him as God has been graceful and forgiving to you. You kind of want to kick rocks, right? Ugh, right? We tend to see people, other people's sins as over, overwhelming. And Jesus says, no, 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 I got their sin. I, I got their sin. It's your sin I'm worried about. You need to forgive each other, live in unity, come back to this, right? Teach the right thing, believe the right thing. And this was an in-house conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples who were struggling with each other in this time of transition as Jesus begins to make his march towards the cross. All right? Questions, comments?